as you're coming in on final approach, that is not the time to be dialing in, in frequencies, looking at your approach plates. That should all has to be done miles before. So you definitely have to be proactive. You have to be looking down the road and saying, what's going to happen here? What are the consequences of this action? What are the consequences of not taking action? Welcome, everyone, to the Ask a CEO Show. Ask a CEO interviews bring us inside the corner office and C-suite for discussions with top executives about their journey to leadership and the reality of running their companies today. Our host, Greg Demetrio, is the CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning integrated marketing company. He is also the founder of gregscorneroffice.com, the home of the Ask a CEO interviews. Greg has been in the business for over 30 years. He is a resource to the media, an invited columnist and speaker on marketing and business topics. Over the years, Greg has talked to hundreds of CEOs and executives about what it took to make it to the corner office and what it is really like being the leader of their companies. And now, he brings those conversations to you. Here's Greg now. Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of Ask a CEO. We're back in our green screen studio with Mr. David Hunt, who is the CEO of Hunt Corporate Services. He's been in the real estate, commercial real estate business since 1973. And he's got an exclusivity to his practice that's different than most real estate operators. Uh, I call his, his real estate business a practice because it's more like a, a legal advisor and an accountant all in one when you're talking about anything commercial real estate. So this should be a really interesting conversation. I'll give you a couple of high points from David's uh, career. He's, he's done over a billion dollars in aggregate deals over the years. Uh, he's a published author with 100 plus articles in the New York uh, Real Estate Journal. He holds the three top designations for commercial real estate in the United States. It's a very rarefied uh, situation when somebody has all three, and he'll tell us about that a little later. But he's also a lifetime Boy Scout. And he's an Eagle Scout, and he is now the president of the Suffolk County Council of Boy Scouts. So I'd like to introduce David. David, welcome to Ask a CEO. Greg, it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, it's a, it's a hot seat there, actually, because we ask some really interesting questions. We get some interesting feedback from our CEOs, um, and you're going to be on the hot seat, I think. I'll do it my best. It should be fun, though. We should fun. I'll do, I'll do my best. That's you know, part of the scout law. Full disclosure, David's a dear friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for more than a week. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give you a taste of who he is as a person that I've come to know. So, David, you started in the industry in 1973. And you've been doing that same work since 1973. So there's a, two questions I have to ask you. How did you get started in the real estate industry, and how has it kept hold on you for so long? Well, I really enjoy what I do. Um, I think that's paramount. You know, when we enjoy what we do, you throw yourself into it, and um, your, your passion shows. Uh, but I have to say, when I started in the industry, that wasn't really my orientation. I got out of college um, in 1973, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. The problem was I didn't have any ideas and I didn't have any money. Um, so that was a, a difficult way to start a new business. Um, so I looked at it and said, well, where can I 
put my efforts in such a way that the financial rewards will be there if I work hard. And um, sales is clearly the way to go. Um, that was a bit of a transition for me because I'm actually an introvert by nature and I had to uh, turn that around and um, used a little bit of jujitsu in my, my sales as an introvert uh, and it worked. Um, but uh, at the time I looked at it and said, okay, I, I, I want to be in sales with big ticket items. At the time I narrowed it down to commercial real estate and to mainframe computers. Wow. Because my background at Georgia Tech included a fair amount of information science, computer-related courses. But I, I answered an ad in, the, uh, in Newsday, uh, commercial real estate, ground floor opportunity, <laughs> and uh, the rest is, is history. That right. So tell me about the very first deal you made and closed. Oh, my, my. I, it's so long ago, I don't really remember the details, but I do remember it took nine months in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me to make my first real estate deal. And uh, it was 100% commission-based, so I, was, I went nine months. So that was a income. baptism by fire. You were holding on by your fingernails for nine months. Please close, please close, please close. <laughs> but to tell you the truth, uh, for most of the industry, which is commission-based, uh, it's like an internship. I, I tell youngsters who are starting out in the business, It'll take you five years just to learn the lingo and, and, and you know, learn how to navigate and talk with customers and so forth. It'll take you another five years to develop a client base. And no, that's no different than a doctor you know, going to, to school and then medical school and then residency and internship. So what is your day-to-day -day like now in terms of what, do you act, what does David Hunt actually do in Hunt Corporate Services? Well, we have a base of clients. And what sets us apart, Greg, um, uh, as you know, is that we only work um, by contract with our clients. So we can be on the buying side, we can be on the selling side, we can be brought in as a consultant, but um, anybody we're working with has signed a contract with our firm to represent their interests. Well, that's different, isn't it? It is different. And, I, you know, I tell people in, in terms of getting the concept across, uh, think of us as an outsourced real estate department. You know, if you're a big enough company, you might have your own real estate department. But um, in general, we're small and, and mid-sized business, uh, mostly Long Island uh, companies. I mean, that's why I introduced you as I did. I said, you're not a real estate broker. You have a real estate practice, which is more akin to a professional service of lawyers and accountants because you're my internal real estate guy, even though you're not in my company. Right. So that's the benefit of working with the Hunt Corporate Services as opposed to many of the other brokers who have a fiduciary responsibility, but not necessarily your side of the table. Correct. Actually, in New York State, um, by law, I represent the seller or the landlord in any transaction unless there is a written contract to the contrary. So you took that and turned it on its head. That's correct. So that uh, when I sign a contract with a company that's looking to lease or purchase real estate, my contract specifically says that I have a fiduciary responsibility to my client. To your client only. Good. That's, really, that's different. That's really different. And, and I guess that's one of the reasons why you've been so successful over these uh, several years that you've been in this business. You know what Woody Allen said about success? Go ahead. 
Eighty percent of success is just showing up. <laughs> I've been showing up for forty-seven plus years, and nobody's caught on yet. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, you you pretty much re you restricted yourself to Long Island base in deals. Uh, we go where our clients need us to go. Uh, in general, my relationships are with Long Island companies. Uh, but we've done business in many states. Um, the furthest uh, afield would be California. We represented a Long Island company here. They needed a, a warehouse in California. Um, I one of the organizations that I belong to is called SIOR, Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. It's um, uh, quite a task to become a member. Uh, there are testing requirements and classroom requirements and portfolio requirements. And uh, the, the SIOR broker represents uh, the top 4% of professionals in the country. So you, you, attract, you attract many chain-type businesses with the offices all over, and you help them acquire real estate, I, I wouldn't say that's a huge component of our business, but when a client needs a specific uh, warehouse or, or office in a distant location, um, I will bring in an associate broker, an SIOR broker, uh -huh. and we have SIO brokers all over the world. Correct. So, I, you know, that's, I reach for that. We speak the same language. We have the same kind of qualifications. So maybe you, that you bring the SIOR up. Tell us about the other designations that you have. I think it's CCIM and the other one I'm... MCR. MCR. So Tell me why those are so important and what it takes to achieve those designations. Well, um, my motivation in the early 2000s was as the um, large worldwide um, real estate organizations were coming into Long Island, um, I realized as a boutique firm that I really needed to uh, give my clients a comfort level, that, that we had a certain level of expertise. Mm. Um, and so I took it upon myself to um, uh, achieve those designations. So the MCR is Master of Corporate Real Estate. Uh, that's bestowed by uh, an organization called Cornet, uh, which is an international organization of professional uh, corporate real estate uh, leaders. Um, I'm allowed to join as a service provider. Mm. So that involved, oh my, um, probably 200 hours of instruction. And then the capstone course was a week at MIT. So you're almost talking the equivalent of a PhD. Um, maybe not a PhD, but certainly a, a master's degree. Yeah. Um, so that's Master of Corporate Real Estate. I mentioned SIOR. And then CCIM is really more about investment real estate. Um, it's a certified commercial investment member as CCIM. Yeah. That also was, um, a lo I think, 160 hours worth of instruction and an all-day exam um, and a portfolio. Um, I'm going back 20 years, but I believe we had to demonstrate $30 million worth of deals in I'm executive summaries. I'm going to and say it's the equivalent of a PhD. <laughs> I know you're a very humble man, but to, to pull off those three designations while working, while making a living, it's, it's an incredible feat. And, and I just think you, you deserve the accolades that those bring to you. Well, I know you, you've, been, you've been named top broker 
in several occasions. You've received numerous, numerous real estate-related awards and good citizenship awards, and we'll get to that a little bit. <laughs> okay. Right. But now, where's the new business coming from? Um, I'm truly blessed today. I, I don't have to go look for new business. It's all referrals and recommendations. Isn't that nice? It's very nice. It's very <laughs> nice. You sleep well at night. I do sleep well <laughs> at night. But seriously, my business is a relationship business. You know, I, um, my longest term client, I've, I've represented the company for 36 years. Wow. And I'm on the second generation, and they're working in the third generation now. So I, mean, I can attest to the way you work, because you and I, you were a client for my company first. And as our needs happened to grow, you became our real estate advisor. And it took years for us to actually work to do a deal together. Right, right. Because you're, you were advising me all along, no, Greg, not the time yet. Maybe a little bit. Let's take a look. Hold on. You have a budget. What's your budget? And it took years for us to finally do a mm -hmm. deal. Uh, and there's nobody else in, in the real estate world that I would deal with other than David Hunt because your advice was so good when you told me not to do something, mm -hmm. right? Which is rather unusual. If you're on the, on the sell side, you want to close that deal. And you were more than, more than happy to tell me, no, now is not the right time to do that or this is not the right deal for you. So that's a little bit different than all the other uh, real estate brokers that, mm -hmm. that are out there, even in, even the top ones. I mean, everybody's driven by the the commission, and they want to make the sale. Your your client base practice turns that on its head, which is wonderful. I think I think that's so needed. I I, I tell new potential clients uh, there doesn't need to be a commissionable event for me to give you advice. Um, now we have we have represented clients where uh, we've been paid by the hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have represented clients where we're um, uh, paid a retainer, but in the main, I would say 95% of our clients prefer to make it a contingency fee. Um, if I'm on the buying side, that's typically paid by the landlord or the seller, mm -hmm. um, but um, most prefer a contingency fee. So I tell them, listen, uh, you know, we, number one, we don't need a commissionable event here for me to be giving you advice. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, uh, number two, uh, when, when it's, it's time to pull the trigger, that's, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you honest advice until that happens. Excellent. Excellent. So amidst all of these other things you're doing, you're also a prolific author. Uh, not only do you write a monthly column for the New York Real Estate Journal, but you've authored 100 and 50 articles, 125 articles, something like that on real estate? Well, most of those articles are a result of the column that I wrote for the, Is that right? <laughs> the New York Real Estate Journal. Uh, I think I've, we've been doing that column, oh, probably uh, 15, 20 years. Well, there you go. There you go. Right. It builds up quite a mass of uh, content and information. You, you know, it's not that difficult to write the article because I just think of what's the What's the latest problem I solved, or what's you know? Oh, that situation I had with Greg—that's good fodder for an article. You know, it's funny how that happens, right? You just yeah. think, well, I have a column I have to write. What am I going to write about? The blank mm -hmm. page is very threatening sometimes. It is. But if you just look at what you've done yesterday and the right. day before, there's right. your, there's your starting point, right? Right. And look at you now. You've got your. I, yeah, I've been I really converted, and I do quite a bit of writing now. And I've been published in other places, so it's, it's interesting how that develops over time. 
because well, you, know, you know we we both bring wisdom to what we do. You know, you're bringing many many years of marketing experience and wisdom um, to your clients and to the general public when you write. You know, and I'm bringing the same sort of real estate wisdom. I don't want them to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I flood the field. So, so I guess we shouldn't say on camera that we're both faking it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Charlie will take care of that in the editing room. So David. With this COVID and everybody working from home, many major corporations have empty office space. What is that going to mean to us in the future? Work is going to be different. Not everybody's going to come to the office. So many of these larger firms with palatial offices that house hundreds of people are not going to need them. What is going to happen? Well, that's a very good question, Greg. And I, I, I think it's going to shake out um, but clearly, the office space market now is a soft market. There's plenty of office space available. Um, and, I, and clearly, we're not going back to the world where we were. Um, I mean, I can just, I probably have at least 10 Zoom meetings a week. Um, so, and listen, there's a real convenience to that. I'm not traveling to every location for a meeting. Um, so yeah, all, all there's a real empty advantage spaces in the Long Island Railroad Station are people who are saving a ton of money. Right. Um, on the other hand, um, listen, there's a certain amount of business that I call it water cooler talk. You know, you and I are in a hallway and, oh, Greg, did you hear about this or that? Or, you know, and that just doesn't happen in Zoom meetings. And that has value. It does have value. So I have to believe we're going to end up with a blend. I don't think Zoom and the... And, to similar programs are going anywhere. I think they'll be here with us for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had video conferencing for years, but aside from major corporations, it never yeah, really it came to age in COVID. Yeah, absolutely. It, absolutely. it never really caught hold. Well, this show itself, I mean, when COVID hit, we couldn't be in the studio anymore. This is the first interview we were doing in the studio after a year. Yes. And I had to convert my Ask a CEO interviews to Zoom to be able to do them at all. I mean, right now we have the two of us. We have two, two operators, two camera operators, and a producer is here. So this is the first time we're doing it, and they're all masked up. Right. right? We're the only ones with no mask in here. So it's changed the way we have to do things, and I think that'll have some staying power to a certain extent. I don't think there'll be any more telephone conferences. I think everything will be video-based. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? Um, but the water cooler situation is something that is missing in, in corporate America. Yeah, and also, um, I'm just finding in my office, when we are all together, there's a little more of a spree de corps. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Just a little bit, you know, we're, we're all in this together. And, of course, when you're not all in it together, <laughs> I think there's a certain psychological uh, dynamic. So I, th I think it is going to shake out. Okay, besides office space, now, some of the bigger commercial spaces the big department stores and so forth are going out. What's going to happen to those spaces? Well, you're seeing repurposing all over the place. A um, good example is the, the Sears uh, store in Hicksville. Mm -hmm. You know, that they're, you know, the development plans are calling for retail on the ground floor and, and residential above, and I, you're going to see more of that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that myself, and I did ask that to another real estate executive. And the answer was exactly the same, repurpose. We're going to come up with creative ways to repurpose these big square footage box stores. 
you know, I mean, whether it's going to be plant grounds outside and make it really pretty and make them luxury co-ops or whatever, or like you said, um, Sears with retail on the bottom, residential on the top, all different configurations of that. And I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing, to tell you the truth. Oh, no, on, on the contrary, I think it's a good thing. I was actually involved in a project uh, in, in Copeg. Uh, it was an old, tired industrial building mm -hmm. and um, was uh, torn down and turned into exactly that, um, and then opposite the Copeg Railroad Station. So it's, it's called transit-oriented development. Yes. So that um, the apartments above the retail stores, people can get into the city by walking across the street. Well, that's a pitch towards the millennials who want to have the recreational facilities, the bars, the restaurants, and so forth, in walking distance. Mm -hmm. Farmingdale is a great example of that. Main Street in Farmingdale is all shops and bistros and bars and restaurants uh, right next to the railroad station. Right. So you've covered the waterfront, so to speak, in real estate deals over all of these years. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about one or two of the client-oriented deals that you did and that point up how different your practice is. I was called into a, um, uh, the, um, the American subsidiary of a large Japanese company, oh, probably 20 years ago or so. And um, I was called in to um, help them find larger space. So I go down, I meet with the, uh, uh, the president of the American subsidiary, and you know, he, he tells me what they need. And I always ask for a tour of you know, the present operation, because mm -hmm. there's you know, nothing like a tour to kind of tell you what's going on. So uh, we walk through the operation. And there's no manufacturing here. This is really distribution for the Japanese um, you know, the, uh, parent company. Um, so we're walking through, and I'm looking around and taking it all in, and we walk back into his office, and I said to him, you don't need a real estate advisor. You need a good material handling engineer. <laughs> he had all the space he needed because he had very high ceilings. He just wasn't taking advantage of it, you know. So and I said, trust me, you know, the equipment that you'll need to buy here is a lot cheaper than moving. Is that right? And um, so... Um, I, I actually introduced him to a material handling engineer. Part of what I do, I sort of feel is like I'm the choreographer. You know, I'm not an architect, but I know a lot of architects, right. and I know, know a lot about well, architecture. Well, I mean, you went to Georgia Tech, so do you have an engineering background? Well, I, I'm not an engineer, but my background was industrial management, so that, that was my go. degree. There so, you, you know, so... Um, but more than that, it was really real life experience. You know, I've seen this many times before. You know, you, I don't need to exactly. tell you. It's the same thing in marketing. When exactly. you see the same thing over and over and over again, you know, so it's, it's you, instinctive. You get, you get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. So whether I'm recommending an architect or an attorney or a marketing company, right, uh, right um, you know, I'm the choreographer sort of putting it all together. But anyway, he was very grateful. I'm sure it was. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you told me a story one time about a deal that was not necessary, or, or a place you were working, actually, and I think it was real estate-oriented, and you had to leave. Do you remember that? You, you, were, you were dealing with somebody who was unsavory, and you had to leave? Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, I, well, I don't want to mention any names. No, don't mention any names. <laughs> I was called in... Um, as the potential marketing agent for um, uh, several properties, uh, several industrial properties. 
and the uh, the owner of the company was uh, out of state and he had flown in for this particular interview and um, the interview was going fine from my point of view he seemed to like me a lot but he was telling me about the real estate market you know I was saying well you know this is what we're facing and this is what we're looking at and you know he said well no no we can we can do better than that and you know and uh, it, it was just kind of pompous whatever <laughs> so um, near the end I said I'm not sure you and I are the right team <laughs> can I have 24 hours to think this over and uh, it, he was sort of nonplussed and you know he said well sure you know and then I called him the next day and said you know I, d I don't really think I'm the right broker for you would you like me to make some recommendations that was very wise <laughs> very wise of you and, he, and sure. he said no 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 I have my own you know so that was that wonderful that's, that's a very interesting take on, <laughs> on dealing with clients should you fire clients is another the other part of that conversation and yes you should well yeah but particularly if um, uh, ethics are involved yes uh, th then you just re you really need to step away yeah you have to be who you have to be and you, you got to look in the mirror There's, I have something hanging at home called the man in the glass mm. And mm. if you look the Every man morning, in the glass no. in the eye, yeah. mm. he knows if you're full of crap. Mm. And don't be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have another story. A uh, client of mine uh, uh, wanted to acquire an industrial building, and we had found something in Ronkonkoma, but uh, he really, his first preference was not to go to Ronkonkoma. He didn't want to go that far mm. east. But it was the right building at the right place. And uh, then a building came up on the market in Deer Park same size, same configuration. And uh, I called him immediately. I said, this just hit the market. Maybe we ought to take a look at it. So uh, we went over and looked at it. And uh, he called me and, and said, yeah, I, I think I want to make a play on this building. And I, I said, Steve, I seem to recall uh, that there's a Superfund site nearby. Let me just do a little research before we start negotiating. And so I called a friend of mine who owns an environmental company, and I said, what would you charge me just to do all the um, uh, public records uh, uh, search and, and evaluation? You don't have to write up anything. Just, just give me a phone call after you've done that. He said, uh, $500 at the time. And uh, I said, fine, do it. So he calls me you know, maybe five days later and says, no, it's almost a direct quote. He said, I'd have no trouble leasing this building, David, you know, but there's no way in the world I would ever put my name in the chain of title on this property. <laughs> <laughs> so I called my client and said, uh, I, I don't think so. No good. no good. And he agreed. You know, I told him what happened and he agreed. And, you know, that was the end of that. But I think it's a good example of, um, you know, my my outlook in terms of I represent my client, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the best for my client. So that's the name of the game. Right. Excellent. Right. And then you and I know about a company who went to contract on a building and then had to back out. Oh, goodness gracious. You need to remind me of that. <laughs> that was painful. And not, not of any, any cause of either one of us, actually. It was a a situational circumstance that uh, it just threw a monkey wrench in the whole thing, and uh, it was a very, very painful uh, thing. 
Right. But you know, sometimes you have to look at stuff and you have to say, you know what, it worked out okay. Yes, yes. But from my point of view, I had a friend in trouble. Yeah. And I had to do my best to extricate my client from the situation. You did. The, the, seller was, the seller was a wonderful man. He worked for a major international corporation. He was the local, the American president for the corporation. And you and I sat down with him. I remember having tears in my eyes that day because I told him we could not complete the deal. Mm -hmm. and, and thank God you were there because I remember leaving the room. And you, t you, you talked to him like a dunch uncle. And he was very, very generous in allowing us to extricate ourselves mm -hmm. from that deal. So there's the value of David Hunt, all in a nutshell. Right. You're in trouble. You got to have somebody who's going to advise you, who's right. going to step up and take the take the hit right. for you. So, right. I mean, there was no way I was going to let you be in that conversation by yourself. It was tough. That was one of the tougher business conversations I've ever had in, in my 28 years doing this. Um, and I, and I, the fact that you were there at my side was super valuable. And we healed. I mean, we mm -hmm. healed. Yep. And, and here we found, are. You found this new space for us. We're in 25,000 square feet. We have two TV studios. We have an agency in the front of the house, a factory in the back of the house. And we're moving forward. Yeah. COVID, in spite of COVID, in spite of everything, we're moving forward. So right. I appreciate all of that. And thank the, you, David. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Amen. <laughs> now, okay, this is a big one. You've just been... Uh, installed as the president of the Suffolk County Council of Boy Scouts. Were you not busy enough? Uh, it was a moment of weakness. <laughs> and, uh, um, yes, and uh, well, it's a passion of mine. It's just, yeah. it's a passion of mine. Um, I think you know the story, but... Um, the I, audience I, doesn't, so maybe yeah, give them the thumbnail so, version. So it, uh, the thumbnail version is, in, in my childhood, um, uh, Boy Scouts was huge, and it profoundly set me up for the success in my life. Um, I had a, a bit of an abusive childhood, and my Boy Scout troop was a very safe place, and I had mentors, and I, um, I found my faith in the Boy Scouts. Um, I found a code that I could live by mm -hmm. in the Boy Scouts. And uh, the mentorship I received from the men at that time was just key. Mm. Um, also learned leadership. And that, you know, when I look at the success in my life and, you know, you start in the present and you work your way back to all the events that happened in your life and you keep going back. I go back to the Boy Scouts and I say, that's where I learned about getting better, uh, um, advancing myself, learning things and leadership. Yes, you and I have talked about that many, many times. And your story is in direct contradiction to some of the allegations that are out there in the world today. That was your foundation. That was where you became David Hunt, if you will, uh, go to, the, to mature into a, to mm -hmm. a solid man. So you became an Eagle Scout. And now you're paying that back by being an Eagle Scout coach. And a couple of two-pointed question here. What does that mean? And if I'm not mistaken, didn't I just see a female become an Eagle Scout? You did. You did. We had the, the first uh, female Eagle Scout in Suffolk County Council um, passed her board of review in late January. Really? 
and you you coach these 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 adolescents through the process of becoming an Eagle Scout? So I was doing that for a district in Suffolk County Council. Basically the entire township of Huntington uh, comprises what's known as the Matinecock District and I was the advancement uh, chair of the advancement committee in that mm -hmm. district. Committee chair for the last four years but on the committee for over a decade. And a big part of our responsibility is working with the scouts who are um, advancing to Eagle Scout ranks. Mm -hmm. So Eagle Scout candidates need to go through the district committee and we review their paperwork, we coach them, we help them out. So um, mm -hmm. I have about 300 scouts I've helped to Eagle. So again, this is the counterpoint to that whole big rubaba about girls going into the, Cub Scout, into the Boy Scouts. So maybe you could tell us why that makes sense? I mean, obviously you just you just installed a female Eagle Scout, which mm -hmm. tells you it's a successful program. But maybe you could tell us why it is and, and why the organization was so willing to accept girls into the Scouts. Well, girls have been in uh, different programs of the Boy Scouts since the late 70s. Is that right? Uh, right. So we, you know, we have a number of different programs. So most people, when, when you think of the Boy Scouts of America, you think about scouts camping outside yeah. with a tent and a campfire. And, and, right, you know, that's what you think about. But uh, Cub Scouts has, has been around for, oh, something like 90 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so Cubs today starts at the kindergarten level and uh, goes to about 10, 10 and a half years old. And then uh, beyond that, it, it's no longer Boy Scouts, Greg. It's Scouts BSA. Oh my goodness, yes, I have to catch up. <laughs> right, so now parent organization is still Boy Scouts of America, but the, uh, the name of the program is Scouts BSA. Um, we also have um, a program called Venturing. This is for young people 14 to 21. And this is really kind of a high adventure program. They mm. do things like, you know, uh, whitewater rafting and climbing and, and mm. so forth. So, and that continues to age 21. So uh, um, our programs basically go from kindergarten to, to age 21. My son went on one of those trips to Phoenix, I believe it was, out into the desert. And they lived in the desert for a week and, what, and he just, he just talks about it all the time. That might have been Philmont, which... That's exactly correct. Okay, so that's one of our high adventure bases. That's in uh, New Mexico. New Mexico. And nice I, I spent 10 days there in uh, 2012. Is that right? Uh, amazing experience. So that's the fun part. But now that you're president, <clears throat> tell me about the challenges that you're facing as a council. <laughs> This is where I probably lost my mind in accepting yeah, uh, this yeah, well, position. <laughs> we've had that conversation too. <laughs> so, um, okay, so front and center is the uh, bankruptcy of the National Boy Scouts of America. This is really um, engendered by uh, sexual uh, abuse cases from, from the past. Mm. And it's, um, listen, one case of child abuse is one too many, Greg. You know, it's just, um, so we need to take care of those people who were hurt on our watch. When I say our watch, uh, most of these cases occurred in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. If you look at a bell curve of the abuse cases, they peak in the late 60s and uh, the early 70s. I earned Eagle Scout in 1967, right? so 
But there were, at the time, Greg, there were no youth protection policies in the Boy Scouts of America or any other youth organization. I mean, that's just the society we were in at the time. I mean, if you think back to... Well, wasn't it just accepted that you would be a wholesome human being working with kids? I mean, there was no reason for anybody to look over your shoulder and say, you're not, no, you're not doing it right, because nobody expected that that was even possible. Well, I think nobody understood the extent of child abuse in general. Mm. You know, just for the moment, put aside the Boy Scouts of America, we're talking about any other youth organizations, we're talking about abuse at home. You know, the studies that are done have shown that, you know, most children who are abused are abused by somebody they know. So this is, a, this is very much a societal uh, sea change for the better. We've had, uh, that is the Boy Scouts of America, have had some sort of youth protection starting in the 80s. Mm. And today we have uh, what's really considered the gold standard of youth protection. So what is the organization, what is the council doing to communicate that to the, to the parents of, of boys and girls that are coming up into your age groups? Well, there's, there's no getting around it. I mean, uh, it's... Um, well, let's just talk about some of the things that we do. So, I mean, just for starters, there is no adult who volunteers in the Boy Scouts of America who hasn't had a criminal background check. So that, that's just for starters. Mm -hmm. You fill out an application and you, you give consent to a background mm -hmm. uh, check. Um, we don't allow any sort of one-to-one -one contact alone between an adult and the scout, period. So when I met with... Uh, Eagle Scout candidates, um, parent has to be there or a scout leader has to be there. I'm, I'm not allowed to meet with them alone. Uh -huh. um, uh, we also have what we call too deep leadership. So any event that's held under the banner of uh, you know Boy Scouts is must have two two leaders present at all times. So you've put in a lot of uh, safeguards to make sure everybody is comfortable yeah. and know that the events that, we're, that, are, that are notorious are in the past. Right. If you look at abuse cases today, we're basically a flat line. Yeah, well, it's, it's, isn't it the same with the, with the church, with the clergy? It's a very similar scenario. Mm -hmm. So many of the cases are years and decades old. Yes. And there have been many mechanisms put in place to keep that from happening right. so that the congregations all have a comfort level that when they go to church, when they deal with the clergy, it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. So now talking about clergy, you and your wife have become ministers. <laughs> now that's very unusual and I, I need you to tell us all about that. Um, it, well, it was one of those things that seemed like the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> We were visiting friends. Well, first, let me just say this. Um, uh, my wife and, and I have been married uh, for 44 years God at this bless. point. Um, we have completely different personalities and, and talents, which goes to make a great team. But one thing we always seemed to be united in was our spirituality yeah. and yeah. Uh, the belief in a higher power and yeah. what we need to do about that. Uh, we were visiting with friends, and um, uh, Judy's friend uh, said to her, uh, you know, I've signed up for seminary, uh, and, you know, why don't you, you know, why don't you come with me? 
And, you know, Judy's, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. And I happened to walk into the room at that time and overheard the conversation. I just said to her, I'll do it if you do it. <laughs> So tell us about the process. What was, well, what it was, was a two-year program. Um, this is uh, an interfaith ministry. So uh, part of the first year of seminary was learning all about the major faith traditions. So, uh, you know, I could be fluent in Judaism and Buddhism and Catholicism and, you know, yeah. whatever sort of isms, major isms there are out there. And, um, and then the, the second year, we really concentrated on um, uh, giving inspirational talks and baby blessings and funerals and, you know, the day-to-day the, the -day affairs of ministers. Can you officiate at weddings? I can. Oh, well, very good. <laughs> nice. I can. So we were ordained uh, two years later. Um, most of the graduates of an interfaith program go on to things like hospital chaplaincy or mm. the armed forces or Red Cross. You don't have enough time in your day to take that on. Please, David, stop. Well, ask me, ask me um, what, um, what my mission here is on earth. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that was the question that was asked of us in the first year of seminary. Why are you here? Why, Why are you here? You know, so a, a lot of my classmates struggled with that a little bit, and I didn't struggle at all. And I knew, I knew the struggles that I went through as a youth were for a purpose. And so I just said, I'm, I'm here for the children. I mean, I know that personally from you. We've talked many, many times about very deep things. We've become very dear friends, and we are free to expose our spirituality to each other. And we've had some very mm -hmm. interesting spiritual and philosophical uh, conversations. We don't always agree, mm -hmm. but I love you no, no different because it opens us up. And I found that in business, actually, that once you open that curtain just a little bit, mm. Yes. You're so surprised at the reception that you get. Yes, isn't that true? It's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. I love it when that happens because then I'm in a whole different plane. I'm not just a business guy. I'm a human being who cares about you. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what I know about you. You, 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 you wear your heart on your sleeve sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, I don't have a problem we, with it. No, either do I. We've <laughs> cried together. So. We've laughed together. We've cried together. We had a couple of glasses mm. of wine together. We've, we're real human beings who, who have allowed ourselves to make a connection in the world. And I think pretty much, David, that carries over to your business because I've spoken to many of the people that you deal with, mm -hmm. and they all come back with the same thing. He's the best. He's a prince. You can't do any better than David Hunt. And that's a huge, a wonderful um, accolades to you, and, and you deserve all of them. Well, you know, when you, you treat people the right way, um, they become your friends. Yes. Right? They become yes. your friends. Yes. If I don't hear from you in several days, I, I pick up the phone I, and I call you. I know. Right? <laughs> What's going on? Why aren't you talking to me? Exactly correct. I mean, that, that, isn't that the, the way you want it to be? Yes. Of course. Yes. You spend so much time at work. Right. Why should you divorce that from human, human relations? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big baby when it comes to that stuff. I love to hear people. I love to take care of people. I love to listen to see if they have something that I can interject, interact with. 
You know, so that, I think that's one of the reasons why you and I are so um, akin to, to those types of things. But I have to ask you, David, I mean, real estate practice for 40 years almost, scout president, minister, top-ranked real estate practitioner. Do you ever sleep? Greg, I ha only have 28 hours a day like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I have so many blessings in my life, I don't even know where to start, but certainly one of them is a lot of energy. I wake up and I'm go, go, go. So how do you compartmentalize? Because you have to do, I mean, you have very significant responsibilities in each one of these silos. How do you do that? You know, I think that's, that's personality and style. I don't really compartmentalize. Um, I, I, I do what's necessary. I... I work, I play, I take time off, I'm, I'm meditating or praying every day, I try and do the exercise thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, I cram a lot into the day. Um, so consequently, I'm usually asleep within 30, 60 seconds. <laughs> if Judy gets up to go brush her teeth, uh, you know, I'm going to be asleep when she, <laughs> when she gets back. So. Because of that, do you see yourself as a reactive or a proactive leader? Oh, definitely proactive. You know, reactive, you get behind the curve, Greg. Um, I learned that as a pilot. You know, as you're coming in on final approach, that is not the time to be dialing in, in frequencies, looking at your approach plates. Uh, you know, that should all has to be done miles before. Mm -hmm. And um, so you definitely have to be proactive. You have to be looking down the road and saying, what's going to happen here? What are the consequences of this action? What are the consequences of not taking action? Mm -hmm. um, so I find that certainly at the council level and, 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 and for my clients in the real estate business. Exactly. Listen, you, when you're talking about real estate, you're talking about decisions that will affect you for three, five, ten years. Yeah, thousands and you thousands know, you, of dollars. We signed a lease you know, for these facilities and yeah. you know, that, that was absolutely a consideration. Yeah, you right? do the math and it's a really big number and you've got to go, okay, fine, is this the right thing for us? Right, right. Yeah. And then what if you grow? Yeah. Right? Or what if you retrench? Or yeah. what, you know, so you're, you're, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in my real estate practice is uh, always look to give my clients options. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean necessarily written options in a contract, but I mean, let's say the business does take off like we think. You know, how can we reconfigure office space, you know, to put in, uh, you know, 20% higher workforce? You know, um, how, you know, what might be necessary in a warehouse? Can we start with uh, a certain warehouse configuration and then move to narrow aisle racking mm -hmm. or um, you know, other means of Excellent. accomplishing Excellent. the same job in the same space. Yeah. 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 So COVID, we're, we're one year into the game already. Tell me how that affected your business, the changes that you had to make, and how did it affect the business overall and not just your employees? Um, well, I've, I, I've had a good year. Um, there's quite a demand for industrial space on Long Island right now, and 
and that's my core expertise. I've been, mm. That's what I've been doing for 47 years. So, um, uh, you know, that demand has spiked prices. It's, uh, we're in the tightest industrial real estate market I have ever seen in my career. Um, so, you know, that, the, you know, that's been, I guess, you know, a, a good thing coming yeah, out of yeah. COVID. Um, and my wife and I are blessed. Uh, it's just the two of us now. Um, mm -hmm. My son and daughter-in-law are in the Bay Area. They're both working from home. So on a personal level, uh, we haven't really been touched by it. But Greg, you know, the human misery around us, uh, the miles-long food lines and um, the, the uh, illness and, and, and deaths for mm -hmm. a year is, is just appalling. Um, so, I, you know, clearly we're all itching to get out of this. Oh, yeah, I can't. And just the weather's starting to turn. It's even going to ramp up that desire to be out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think humans need to be amongst humans. They can't stand it. Right. Poor children who have not been able to be with their friends and so forth right. in schools. Or go to school. I hold a very big grudge against the major teacher unit because the firemen were out there, the nurses were out mm. there, the cops were out there, everybody was out there at the height of everything. And they're sitting back and saying, no, we can't go. It's not safe yet. I, hold, I really hold a big grudge about that. I don't think that that's fair. I don't think mm -hmm. it's right. I don't even think it's, it's, it's kind. You know, mm -hmm. and I don't mean to be political, but I think it's something that needs to be addressed. We can't be puppets to the power of the teachers' union. Our kids are suffering. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you're very involved with kids, and you know. You know, how we, did the scouts do in, in COVID, though? How, what, did, what happened? I mean, do well, we, we, we listen. We got creative like everybody else. Um, so uh, last summer, we were not able to open a sleepaway. Uh, uh, scout camp uh, at our scout camp in Baiting Hollow. Uh, but our intrepid staff uh, reconfigured, worked it out, put in long hours, and we ran a successful day camp program. You know, we had, and we were doing all the right things by New York State and the health department. We had the kids in pods. You know, uh, the dining hall was, you know, six feet apart, uh, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. However, I, I was out there counseling for a week. I have never seen happier kids. They were so oh, happy to be I outside. Imagine, I can Archery range, rifle range, climbing tower, I wanna waterfront. I want to go. <laughs> I want to go. So before we keep you all day, mm -hmm. I know you have to get back to work. So I always ask the guests this one question. What is the best advice you ever got? It can be personal or business or both. Do the right thing for the right people, at the right time, for the right reason. And I'm going to say thank you very much, David. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I couldn't ask for a better guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, David Hunt from Hunt Corporate Services. Uh, you can catch Ask a CEO interviews on YouTube and on all the streaming services as a podcast. So we ask you that if you like what you see, Please share it, like it everywhere, send it out to all your friends and family, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's a wrap on another Ask a CEO interview. We hope you enjoyed the talk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit gregscorneroffice.com, click the Ask a CEO tab, search your favorite listening app or view on YouTube. Click the subscribe button and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye from Ask a CEO.